Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Harriet Steele's Inspector de Silva historical crime series takes us back to the exotic sights, sounds, and smells of 1930s Ceylon under the British Raj in classic Golden Age mystery style. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Harriet talks about how an encounter with Chocolat author Joanne Harris changed her life forever and her passion for the remarkable Lola Montez, who in her day was second only to Queen Victoria in fame and notoriety. But before we get to Harriet, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Harriet's books and blog, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Harriet. Hello there, Harriet, and welcome to the show. It's great. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Jenny. It's a great pleasure to be here. I've loved uh, the Noala books, and I just wanted to ask you, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you really had to write fiction or somehow your life wouldn't be quite complete? And if so, was there any sort of special catalyst for it? Uh, yes, I, I think there was a catalyst, but uh, I'll start from the beginning. I grew up on a farm in Wiltshire, which is was then a very quiet part of England, and there weren't many other children around to play with, so I had quite a solitary childhood as my sisters both went away to school when I was still quite young. But if I wasn't out if I wasn't outside you know playing on the farm or in the garden, I would be usually found inside with my nose in a book. And I think because I loved reading, eventually I came to the feeling that you know I would like to try my hand at writing and I think as a lot of people do when they start off they write short stories because they seem a manageable length although short, short stories are actually a great deal harder than most people think to write successfully but you know I was very pleased that I managed to get a few published in magazines which was which was lovely but I never really aspired to anything you know longer than a short story and then I was in my 40s when I entered a national short story competition and the idea of it was that six well-known writers would write the first half of a story and the people entering the competition would write the second half and you had to choose whose whose story you'd like to pick and I chose the story started by Joanne Harris who I imagine most people have heard of she wrote the book Chocolat which was a very popular novel about 20 years ago mm-hmm. probably heard of her yes yes and anyway I was lucky enough to get to the finals which was very exciting and you know a lot of people said very nice things about my story and I met Joanne Harris at the final judging and somebody said to her you know what advice would you give to aspiring writers and she said just drop the word aspiring and get on and write and I think that gave me the confidence to think you know, maybe I should just do that. Maybe I should take it, let my, allow myself to take my writing more seriously rather than just thinking of it as, oh, a little hobby I have. You know, maybe I could make more of it. So I think that was my catalyst, really. 
Yes. Oh, that's great. Um, it's amazing to me to think that it's 20 years ago since Chocolat was published. I mean, the time just goes so fast. Yes, just had its 20th anniversary. <laughs> it's, it's exciting when you meet someone like that, and it makes the idea of being a writer a lot more real, doesn't it? Mm, it does, yes. She was very charming and very approachable. And I think she gave you know, the three of us who got to the finals a lot, a lot of confidence, which was, which was really kind of her. She met us at her home, which also was, was lovely because you felt you know, very welcomed rather than just meeting her in a television studio. And uh, it, no, it, was, it was really quite, a, I think, a pivotal moment in my writing career. And tell me, do you know, did either of the other two finalists continue on to be published authors like yourself? As far as I know, they didn't. In fact, sadly, one of them became very ill about a couple of years afterwards and, and died. But uh, the other one, no, I, I don't think she did. Well, that's a, a feather in your cap. So your most recent work, we'll get, we'll get on to talking about some of your earlier work a little later on in the, as mm-hmm. the chat, but you've become known in recent years for this historical crime series that you've been working on, Marvellous Books, Set in 1930s Salon. So they're historical crime series. And they feature a a Salonese, or Sri Lankan as we'd call him today, police officer who's married to a British woman. Tell me how that, the concept for that came about. Well, I'd wanted for, I did actually start writing historical novels. I think, you know, we'll probably talk about later. Um, But I was very keen to try a mystery series. I've always enjoyed the mystery genre. And, and I knew the kind of mystery books I wanted to write. I didn't want to write anything with a lot of violence or sex or swearing on the page. And I wanted a detective who would be, well, not middle of the road. Um, he would need to have some issues, but I didn't think I could write the kind of detective who, you know, is an alcoholic mm. with a broken marriage and that kind of thing. I mean, some people do that kind of book very, very well with elements of of horror in them sometimes, I think. But it it wouldn't be for me. So I knew the type of person I wanted my detective to be. And I knew the type of mystery I wanted. The the thing that was lacking was I didn't know what setting I wanted. And and setting is very important to me. I don't really enjoy books unless they have a very strong sense of the setting. And it was when I went to Sri Lanka on on an extended holiday that I fell in love with the country so much that I thought, you know, this is the place I I want to set my series and the place I I want to write about. And when I got home, it was as if the words were just spilling out. I think I wrote the first book in the series in about three months because I was so excited about it all and couldn't wait to write about the country. And the um, characters took shape, really, as as I went along, took more concrete form as I went along. Mm. So how long did you actually spend in Sri Lanka at that, on that holiday? Well, for my, for my taste, not nearly long enough, but uh, I, could have, I could have spent months there really, but I spent about uh, three weeks uh-huh. there and also read a lot. Of, I read a lot about the country, both you know, novels and things that people in the past had written about it, early travellers there. Um, I've read everything I could Fine, really. Yes, and there's a very strong sense of setting, as you say, and particularly I think I was impressed by the feeling Inspector De Silva loves his garden and there's such a strong sense of appreciation of the natural world and, and gardening gardening and garden plants. I, I got the feeling that you probably 
also loved your garden. Would that be right? Yes, I do. I do. And I think that's one of the things that greatly appealed to me about Sri Lanka. Uh, the plant life is, is wonderful and so diverse, and also the animals and, and the bird life. It's renowned for its, its bird life. It has a huge number of species of birds. And I think because it's a, a small island, it's not terribly built up. And the population per square mile is a lot smaller than India's. You know, you're, you're not aware of the teeming millions as you are in India. In fact, some people have said that Sri Lanka is India without the crowds and the dirt. And I think that's probably quite a true description. It's also known as the pearl of the Indian Ocean. And it the wildlife there is is and the plant life is just so beautiful that I think that was one of the things that greatly appealed to me. And yes, I am a, you know, I'm a keen gardener, obviously in a very different sort of environment in, in the UK. We haven't got the, the lushness that you get in somewhere like Sri Lanka, but I do very much enjoy plants and I very much like playing around with the different shapes and colours and, and so on. Mm. So I think that's why I gave Inspector De Silva that quality. Right, yes. And because it's set in the colonial time when Sri Lanka was still a British colony, it gives it a real flavour of the classic Golden Age mysteries because you've got that mm. structure of, of social um, status. And Yes. But I gather that in Passage from Nuala, which is the most recent one that you've written, it's set on a cruise liner. And that seems to me even more of a golden age setting because they're all stuck in one place and they can't um, get off the boat. So it's a bit like yes. on the Orient Express, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes. Or Death on the Nile yeah. or <laughs> when they were all stuck on a boat. And, um then there were none. They're all stuck on an island. <laughs> yes, it's a it's a very tempting conceit, really. That, and I think it it does work yeah. well. I, I think I've you know I've wanted to try some of the traditional golden age themes, really. So, uh, in fact, passage from Nuala was also inspired by a wonderful exhibition at our Victoria and Albert Museum in London, which was about the golden days of cruising, the twenties and thirties, and it was absolutely fascinating going into all the fashions people would have worn and you know the luxury of the ships the wonderful interiors amazingly enough people still the, the creators still managed to find some of the original interiors to some of the ships that would have sailed particularly a french one called the normandy and they managed to find some of the paneling that would have been in one of the lobbies which has been preserved in a museum in france i believe but they they brought it over and, then, and the lavishness and luxury of these ships was quite amazing uh, it was you know, marvelous to see it and and very very inspiring. I was lucky that the exhibition you know, took place at the time that it did, so it really sparked off a lot of ideas for me. But you haven't been on a cruise yourself? Well, not that kind of <laughs> cruise. No, I have been on a few cruises, but they're not as luxurious these days as they were in the 20s and 30s. No. People don't dress up like they used to. I think everybody used to dress for dinner every night, uh, certainly if they were in the, the top classes, uh, the cabin class and the you know, the class below that. But uh, no, I don't think cruises are as smart as they used to be. So I guess they would be categorised as cosy mysteries. They've got that sense of being in, in one setting with a group of people. Um, but there is definitely yes. quite a nice, edgy sense of subtle social and political commentary going on. And with the relationship between Inspector De Silva and his wife, Jane, which 
would be frowned on in some circles. Um, you've got you've got a lot to work with there in terms of just notching up a little bit between being too cosy, haven't you? Yes, a cosy mystery is such a wide yes. term, isn't yeah. it? You know, yeah, spans everything from the mysteries where the cat helps to solve it, or, or there's a lot of cookery yes. or paranormal elements, and something as you say, which is more like the golden age crime. Um, but yes, I, I'm, you know, thank you very much for what you said about the social and political issues. I, I, I felt it would be dishonest not to touch on that a little, although I, I didn't want to labour it too mm. much because essentially the series is meant to be a light, entertaining read for people. But I felt it was you know, ducking the issue really not to make any kind of commentary just to keep it quite low key if I could. Yes. Because I've, I'm sure there there must have been issues with, with a country which is colonised. And although Ceylon was, a, I think they got their, they became a dominion in 1948, so about 10 years after my series is set. But obviously there were, would have been the first rumblings of the desire for greater independence. Mm. And there was quite a lot of violence in India by then because Indian independence came about in a much more stormy fashion than it did in, in Sri Lanka, which was relatively peaceful. So it's impossible to ignore that element. And I think as an intelligent man, even though Inspector de Silva isn't a natural rebel, you know, he's not somebody who says, we must have change and we must have it now, I think he ex accepts that cr gradual change is better than you know, violent change. But obviously, he would have thought about his position vis-a-vis -vis the British authorities and, you know, looked forward to a time perhaps when he wouldn't have to grapple with that any longer. Mm. And for Jane, his wife, of course, she's got a foot in two camps. You know, she has to fit in with the British, British milieu, milieu, you know, the sewing circle, the ladies who arrange church flowers, the ladies who do the charitable works and so on. But she's also got her loyalty to her husband. And I think because they're older and she is comfortable in her own skin, she is better equipped to cope with that and you know, not to mind too much about what people say about them. But I, I think they have established their position in the society in Nuala and it's not such a, a difficulty for them now. But in fact, in the coming book, it will. It, the murder is set in in a golf club, and that is a would be a very closed, privileged little world. As I think in the thirties would have been the same here. Actually, golf clubs were really quite snobby and quite exclusive, and that is a different angle for him to have to deal with. That you know he has to go in and do his job in a place where basically locals aren't welcomed he wouldn't have been able to be a member of a golf club in those days I very much doubt he would have been accepted mm -hmm. so that a little more of that will will come out in the in the forthcoming book but on the whole I've tried to you know keep it reasonably low-key I, I don't want to make them a political tract you know they are meant to be entertainment yes it's just as you say you can't ignore it or it wouldn't be true to, to what was going on. Um, if your readers were keen on on seeing the salon that you that you fell in love with, have you got places that you would suggest they go to if you were giving people recommendations for their own little magical mystery literary tour, where would you send them? Yes. Uh, the if if you're 
looking around for where to go in Ceylon, I would say definitely go to the hill country because it is extremely beautiful and there's some wonderful hotels to stay in up there. Not necessarily expensive luxury hotels, but just charming places. So I would definitely say don't miss the hill country. And if you can, take the train up there, which is a wonderful experience going up on the train. Also, I would say go to Candy, uh, which features quite regularly in my my books because it's a very elegant town there's a fascinating temple there called the temple of the tooth where they say they have one of buddha's teeth and the time to go is late afternoon when the shrine is opened and it's extraordinary you go in and there's men beating drums all over the place and all the visitors are rushing around because you have to go really quickly to get your chance to go through the shrine because so many people want to do it. Ideally, you want to go with a local guide who can take you because otherwise you just might become completely confused and, and never actually see the shrine. But that that's a fantastic experience. And there's a beautiful lake in the middle of the, the town called the Sea of Milk, which is a lovely place to walk around. And apart from that, I would say there's a lot of wildlife to see in Sri Lanka and I would try and go to one of the game parks the main one is called Yala and you'll see a lot of elephants there and a lot of other animals if you're very lucky you might see a leopard but that's um, not not guaranteed by any means but I think those were the pl- would be the places I would say definitely go to. So is Nuala based on any particular town? It is it's based on a town in the hill country called Nor- Norelia but it's not spelt that way it's spelt Nuara Elia and I decided for two reasons, really, that I wouldn't use the real town, partly because it's difficult to pronounce. And I think, mm. you know, it took me a while mm. to learn how to say it mm. properly. And partly because I felt that I, I didn't want to deal with a real place and commit, yes. you know, yeah. inaccuracies. Yeah. And it's difficult to be sure that you've got everything mm. right, mm. you know, that every road is in the right place you've described a building precisely so I thought I would allow myself to make up a town but based on Norelia and then I couldn't have that problem. Yeah it gives you a lot more freedom and and for most of your readers it would be quite irrelevant anyway it's not a town like Florence Mm. or Rome that people have heard of. No Mm. no absolutely Mm. I mean I didn't think it really mattered and I, I thought it was just easier really to make up a place. Now, as we referred to earlier, before you started that crime series, you wrote several books of historical fiction, including one about Lola Montes, who's been described as the most famous woman of Victorian times after Queen Victoria herself. Tell us about your love for historical fiction. And obviously you began there and then moved on to the crime a little later. Yes, I've been very fond of historical fiction for a long time and I still read quite a lot of historical fiction. I didn't really ha- have a any strong idea of what period I'd write in and it was purely by chance that I came across Lola when I saw her pe- portrait in a picture gallery in Munich and she I very quickly realized she was an absolute gift to a novelist because she had such an extraordinary life. So the novel I wrote about her, I suppose, should be described as faction <laughs> or biographical novels. Yes. Um, she, she was amazing. She she had a scandalous career as a dancer, and then she was also an actress. Also, she had a career as a writer and a lecturer, in which she was apparently more popular than Charles Dickens for, oh for some gosh. time. She was a yeah. very, very good lecturer, apparently, and a v- wonderful communicator. And 
the other thing she was famous for was her her lovers, with whom some commentators said she had thousands. I think that's a wild, probably a wild exaggeration, but she certainly had hundreds, and they included the composer Franz Liszt um, and various British politicians, but most notably King Ludwig I of Bavaria, and he lost his throne over her. He was given an ultimatum by his ministers that he should give her up or he should give up his throne, and he gave up his throne. He was so besotted with her. And she was just an in- incredible woman. She travelled widely. She never got to New Zealand, as far as we know, but she did get to Australia, mm. where she went down a gold mine, <laughs> to everybody's amazement. She also got to California, um, lived in Grass Valley in California for a while, which I believe you have a connection yes, with. Yes, yeah. And, and she um, made herself a lot of money there. She invested in gold mining and, and made a good deal of money, but money never stuck to her. She, you know, she just spent it all. She was very generous. She, you know, entertained everybody in Grass Valley. She held lovely parties for the children. She would, at Christmas time, she would get in her sledge, harness up her horses and go up to Nevada City to buy presents for everybody and come back and hold a wonderful Christmas party for them. So I imagine she would have been tremendous fun. Yes. And as long as she liked you, I would think she would have been great company. But she had a fearful temper. So if she didn't like someone, if they did something to annoy her, she she had a terrible temper. She was a real wild cat. She seemed to discard her men just as quickly as she found them too, didn't oh, yes. she? Oh, she mm. did. Yes, she did. Yes. I mean, she didn't give anybody a second chance. No. Once you'd annoyed her, that was that was it. And in fact, she ended up managing her own tours. Um, she, she toured America and, as I said, Australia with the plays she put on. And after a couple of managers were discarded, who are managers stroke lovers, she decided to manage her own tours and, and did it extremely well. So, But sadly, she wore herself out. She died when she was 39. She died in America at the age of 39. Um, it was reported pneumonia, but I think it could have been syphilis mm-hmm. because you know, she had so many lovers mm-hmm. and I don't think precautions were very good at that mm-hmm. in that time and, and no antibiotics mm-hmm. or anything. Mm-hmm. So I, I fear that might have been a bit of a whitewash, yes. but she, you know, she certainly lived fast. Yes. And you also did uh, two books in a series called The Paris Chronicles. Um, yes. Have you spent time in Paris yourself? Tell us about that. Yes, I lived in Paris for uh, about three months when I was younger, and it's a city I love very much. And I chose the 19th century period that I did because it was a time when Paris had really been transformed by Napoleon III, who was the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. It had been transformed from a medieval city into the wonderful modern city that we we know today with lovely boulevards and you know lots of very modern shops for the time and wonderful monuments and it was a very exciting place to be it it was the most envied city in Europe there was nowhere else like it so I thought it'd be a fascinating place to set a book but I it was also a time when shortly the French would go to war with the Prussians and the Prussians won which I think was a tremendous shock to the French because they thought they were the top power in Europe and so again I think a a pivotal time is an interesting time to write about. Mm. So that was why I chose that time. And it's a kind of coming of age story with a Russian girl who comes to Paris with her new husband and the marriage goes wrong and she has to su- survive on her own. And it's the story of how she does. Mm. Great. 
Look, turning to your wider career away from talking about the individual books, you worked as a lawyer before you became a novelist. I wonder how that has helped you with your writing. Has it helped you with your writing? I think it has, yes. I think it's enabled me to be a a bit analytical about what I've written because as any other writer will know, getting your first draft down is is a relatively small part of the process. When you've done that, you've got to do some, you know, some rigorous editing and be very critical of your work if you're going to produce something at the end which is worth people's time and money and I think it's very important to remember that you're not only expecting people to invest a bit of money in your book you're expecting them to invest time which is almost more of a big ask I think these days and so you do have to be very critical I think and I think it's helped me to be able to look at my work quite dispassionately and think about you know whether it does hang together and is do, do I need everything that's in it I, I don't like a lot of padding in a novel you know is everything that's in it absolutely necessary to develop the plot and the characters so yes I think it, it has helped to a certain mm. extent and if there's one thing you've done more than any other that you would consider the secret of your success what would it be to other aspiring writers who are now following on your track I think it's perseverance, really. It, you know, it's, it's a long process and you you need to be patient. You need to not be discouraged by setbacks. I think most people have them. You know, this idea of somebody being an overnight success is lovely, but I think it very, very rarely happens. Uh, there's a British writer, I, I don't know if you know her, called Mary Wesley, who wrote a a book a few years back called The Chamomile Lawn, which certainly took the UK by storm. I don't know if, if it was read in New Zealand, but she was she was interviewed, I remember, and people said she was in her late 60s, or possibly in her 70s by then. And the interviewer said, how does it feel to be an overnight success in your 70s? And she just looked at him and she said, it's only taken me 20 years. <laughs> and I thought, how... <laughs> what a good answer yes. because it does take a long time you know you, you've got to persevere and I think also you've got to have some luck just good old-fashioned luck yes. uh, social media does help I think it's worth having a social media pre- presence and you know somewhere where your readers can get in touch with you and then maybe they will talk to talk to their friends about you and that will help to build up your profile I think it's worth doing some advertising there's a huge number of of avenues now for advertising and you need to be careful it can get tremendously expensive if you're not careful so you need to be a bit judicious about where you spend your money but I think really just persevere yes yes look the show is called the joys of binge reading and it is predicated on the idea that readers these days really enjoy having a series where if they discover an author they like they can read more than one of their books who do you like to binge read? And have you got any recommendations for, for listeners on, on people that they might enjoy? Yes. Uh, I know it's probably rather heretical to say that on your programme, but I actually am a bit of a series sampler as well as a binge reader because being a writer of mysteries, I like to know what everybody else is doing. So I will, you know, sample a lot of different series. There are so many around. But if that said, if I like a series, I will probably go and read several more mm-hmm. of them but yes yeah, series I particularly enjoy things with a strong setting and also things with some historical detail suit me very well I enjoy the Montalbano books by Andrea Camilleri which are set in the beautiful island of Sicily another writer I like is 
Barbara Cleverly, who writes the Joe Sanderland series. That's set in the 20s in in India, which, of course, is one of the you know, the area I'm particularly mm, interested mm. in. There's a British author called Ellie Griffiths I like very much. She writes a series set in Norfolk. Norfolk is in the east of England, and it's traditionally a rather cut-off area. It's always been a little bit difficult to get to. It's very, very flat, and it has because of that, it has absolutely wonderful big skies. And I think it has a rather mysterious beauty that's always appealed to me. And she conjures up that beauty in a brilliant way, I think. It's one of the things I love about her books. And her detective, Ruth Galloway, is an archaeologist. She's an amateur detective. She helps the police as an archaeologist. And I find having that extra element of, about the archaeology is also very interesting. They all sound fantastic, yeah. Yes, they're, they're, they're good. Um, my only caution about the Montalbano is that there's a lot of bad language. So if that's something that you dislike when you're reading, I'd recommend you get the box set of the television series and watch that instead because they've taken out all the bad language. So, you know, if somebody really dislikes seeing a lot of rude words, yeah. then they might be happier with the television series. Um, on the historical side, I very much enjoy the Shardlake series by C.J. Oh, Sansom, yes. which I think is known to mm. a lot of people. I think his grasp of history is is wonderful. He's interestingly he's an ex lawyer as well, um, and another writer who writes rather much in his vein. And I've only discovered quite recently is S. J. Paris, spelt with two R's. She writes a series called the Giordano Bruno series, and again it's historical mystery, starting off in the mid sixteenth century and going through the period of Queen Elizabeth. So wonderfully rich period, you know, with a lot of lot of things going on. And Giordano Bruno was actually a real person. He was an Italian friar. He was a philosopher and a mathematician. And he was very interested in the occult, which unfortunately eventually made him fall foul of the church. And he was burnt at the stake by the Inquisition. But he makes a, a wonderful protagonist and uh, I, I enjoy her books very much I think she's not quite as well known as CJ Sampson but definitely worth discovering mm. oh fantastic we are starting to run out of time so just circling around and looking at your writing career at this stage if you were doing it all over again is there anything you would change uh, I think I would have started seriously a bit earlier. I, mm. I, you know, I would like to have written more books, really. How long does it take you to write a book? Do you do one a year, or certainly, I'd like I like to do one a year, um, preferably two. I, I think they're quite short books, and my readers, you know, always seem eager to know when the next one's coming out. And if I can, I, I like to do two a year. I wrote two last year. I've written one this year so far. And I'm hoping the next one will be coming out uh, October or maybe at the latest November. So, so yes, two two a year. I think it's a, a little bit of a danger trying to write too many. There's very much a fashion at the moment, certainly amongst independently published authors, of which I'm one, that you know because people do love to binge read and binge watch television series and so on. That you must bring out as many books as you can, as you know, work as fast as you can. I think there's a bit of a risk of compromising quality well for me anyway compromising quality I can't say that for any other writers but I, I do like to think I'm giving my readers the best possible work I can yes I totally agree and do you do several drafts oh I do yes yes I do um the first one I'll probably do quite quickly as I, I like to write fairly quickly to start with and then the second one will 
take me longer. And by the time I get to the third one, I'm going quite slowly. Yes, yeah. That's wonderful. So that leads rather nicely into asking you about what is next for Harriet, the writer, and the projects you've got in the works. When is the next Duala book due out? Well, either next month or, or November. It's gone up to my editor at the moment, and so I'm waiting on him. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes back, mm-hmm. I'm sure he'll have comments and there'll be a bit of rewriting. Then it needs to be proofed, of course, and you know, cover designed and so on. I'm very lucky I have a lovely cover designer because that's not certainly not one of my talents. I would take ages just yeah. deciding how big the font should be on the cover. You know, I, I think she's she's great. She you know has perfect eye for for doing covers so yes your covers are very recognizable aren't they they're strongly branded yes Yes, they are very colorful that's what I wanted because it's it is so colorful Sri Lanka I wanted to get that across and the elephant of course Mm -hmm. is the country's symbol in fact we started Mm. off Jane and Dixon Smith and I who's my designer with something completely different and then something much more in the line of other 30s mysteries and then decided I didn't want to do that you know I didn't want to try and piggyback on anyone else's look and and went for that Mm. instead and it's been very popular a lot of people do comment on the covers and how much they like them. I was just going to ask if it's got a title yet the new one. It has it's called Rough Times in Nuala. (laughs) Yes we can see that there is a a little bit of stormy weather ahead. So, uh, yes, I'm hoping it won't be too much longer. I mean, the lovely thing about being an indie publisher is that you can, to a large extent, dictate your own timetable. You know, I'm not one of hundreds of books that a publisher is producing where you have to wait your turn. Yes. And after that? I think possibly another in the series. I, I Every so often I toy with the idea of dreaming up a new series. And I know a lot of mystery writers do write several series, which I think could be very interesting, although more of a challenge to keep them all in your head. But, um, you know, my writers do say, my readers do say that they they love the characters and they, when they read a new book, they feel as if they're catching up with old friends. And so I think sometimes why not just stay with them? You know, people seem to enjoy the books as they are. That's right. And setting up a new series, it would take you quite a bit longer to get into them, wouldn't it? I mean, with a series that you are really familiar with your characters, it lends itself to helping you to write them reasonably quickly. It does. And also, you know, to, to think up new plots for them without having to worry too much about your character, what, what your, who your characters will be, because you, you know, you get to know them and you know how they react to things. But of course, they develop as well. And I usually bring yes. in a few new characters in each book, some of whom stay in the in the mix and some of whom go. But, you know, there's always a few new characters that you need to dream up, which is quite fun. Is there a time and place that would tempt you if you were doing a new series? I don't think I'd write a contemporary series. I don't really think I know enough about contemporary police work and contemporary forensics mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. write that mm-hmm. in a you know convincing way. I think I would go back probably to the 40s and 50s and choose an area you know that I, I know uh, reasonably well it would have to be somewhere that I I knew something about so it would be mm-hmm. probably the west country I would go for that's where I grew up and I you know the part mm-hmm. of England I know best well look, that's wonderful now you've mentioned um communicating with your readers where can your readers find you and how can they communicate with you well I'm on Facebook as Harriet Steele author 
Uh, I also have a blog. I don't actually have a website, but I have a blog. And if people Google Harriet Steele blog, they will they will find me. Fantastic. And you're on Goodreads too, aren't I you? Am, because yes. I see plaintive little things from people saying, when is the yes. next book coming yes. out? <laughs> yes. yes, Goodreads is, is uh, an amazing place, isn't it? Wonderful. Mm. It is. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, Harriet, look, that's wonderful. Uh, we'll put links to all of the things that you've mentioned in the show notes that we post for each episode. So listeners will be able to find the links to your books, to the books that you've recommended and to the places that they can find you in the show notes. Oh, Thank good. you so much for taking it's part. It's a pleasure. It's been wonderful talking. Great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, lovely. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.